0: Hello, this is John Clark, and you are listening to Jazz Focus, a new jazz podcast. Hopefully, you'll be interested in hearing a little bit about my interest in jazz and some of the things that I find compelling. So, the purpose of this podcast, and what I believe will make it maybe a little bit different from other ones, is that I'm going to treat this as kind of a short radio show, and I'm going to focus on one particular focused aspect of jazz, whether it be a recording session or a certain repertoire or a soloist or songwriter. All sorts of things are in play for this. uh, I'm not going to make some grand uh, survey of jazz history or some long-range look at some artist's career or anything like that. I'm just going to look at some of the things that I find most interesting and compelling about jazz history. So before we begin, I want to say that my inspiration for this program was actually uh, a dear friend of mine, dear late friend of mine, Ray Smith. Many of you may be familiar with Ray Smith and his great radio show, The Jazz Decades, which was on Boston area radio, WGBH and some other stations as well from, oh, I think the mid to early 1960s all the way up into the 1990s. And so during that career, uh, Ray probably introduced hundreds of thousands of listeners to classic jazz and other types of jazz that he was interested in. And so I hope to have a small part in the same market, I guess. I'll always remember Ray as a great mentor of mine. I spent a lot of time talking to him about various aspects of jazz history and recording history. He was a walking encyclopedia, and uh, he also gave me the opportunity to play in his band, the Paramount Jazz Band of Boston, which was a formative experience in my life as a musician, uh, as well as a uh, a jazz scholar and uh, an interested party in recordings and recording sessions. So without further ado, let's jump right into the topic of the day. So for my first podcast, I decided to take something that I have been uh, turning over in my mind for a few years. I published a book uh, not too long ago, in 2015, called uh, Experiencing Bessie Smith. It's a reader or a listener's companion to the music of Bessie Smith, published by Roman and Littlefield. And what that was was a, a look at Bessie Smith's recorded legacy, kind of through the prism of her professional life and some of the themes that she investigated or that we can see uh, emerging through her recordings and her recording career. And one of the things that I found most interesting uh, were a short series of recordings she did in the fall of 1929, where she was accompanied only by James P. Johnson, the great Harlem Stride pianist, and uh, I found the eight recordings, uh, released recordings that she made during this period to be really a little different from her recorded uh, legacy up to that point and following as well, and so we'll be talking to you about that. But first, a little bit about Bessie Smith. Those of you who follow traditional jazz and blues know Bessie Smith is the empress of the blues. She was easily the most successful classic blues singer of the 1920s. Uh, she was an African-American born in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, very poor, in either 1892 or 1894, depending on the source. And she, uh, very early on, started performing uh, on street corners for tips and so forth, and then moved into professional entertaining by 1912 or so, performing in a lot of the black shows that were crisscrossing parts of the country. And this was a, a, an interesting uh, reflection on the entertainment industry at the time. Of course, this was during segregation, and uh, there were no such things as mixed shows, let alone mixed venues at the time. So if you toured in vaudeville and you were African-American, you had a certain circuit of theaters called uh, the Black Vaudeville or, or... TOBA, the Theater Owners Booking Association, and uh, that would be a, a circuit that would take you throughout the South and out to the Midwest and occasionally up north and to the far west as well. Uh, those were tours that were often done during the winter months because during the warm weather, the spring, summer, and fall in the South, many African American entertainers toured so called under canvas, and that meant touring in circuses and in tent shows, and these would go from place to place and town to town and region to region, usually uh, with the agricultural seasons. You know, when a certain crop was harvested, that was when the workers would be paid, so that was when these uh, companies would go and perform uh, in that area to take a little of the money of the uh, workers and give them a way to uh, cut loose a little bit, too. And so. A performer like Bessie Smith would have toured throughout the South uh, on shows like this, and they would have uh, gone to a town and maybe done a parade, as circuses would do, tent shows did the same thing, through the center of town with the band playing and singers singing and you know actors and actresses in costume, just to raise some interest in the particular entertainment that was coming that night or that weekend or whenever it might have been. Uh, Circuses did the same thing, and very often these circuses were white-owned and run, like Barnum & Bailey, for example, and uh, they would uh, do the same thing, but they would often have a a band of African-American musicians who were playing in the ragtime and early jazz style. Uh, This would have been in the late 1890s and all the way up into the 1920s or so. Uh, One of the famous band leaders of style was, of course, W.C. Handy, the father of the blues, and that's how he uh, developed his idea of music and syncopated dance music and so forth. So these African-American bands would often play outside the main tent. They would be sideshow acts when the circus began that night or that weekend or whatever, and it was an important element in music history in America for the introduction of African-American performance practices to white society because white audiences would go to the circuses, but they would also hear uh, the parades and these uh, bands and acts playing outside the main tent. So it was an interesting step towards integration. was happening as early as 1900. Now, the music that these groups were playing, as I said, probably had quite a bit to do with ragtime, which was the dominant popular style, also with the march and marching band music. They were probably playing uh, arrangements of pop tunes, uh, things from uh, Black Broadway and vaudeville, which was uh, thriving in the early 1900s, Uh, They probably played transcriptions of opera examples, things like that as well, but played in their own style. We listened to the marching bands of New Orleans and some of the recreations of that to get a sense of what perhaps that style sounded like. And there may have been some improvisation, there definitely were some folk music trends as well. Ma Rainey, the great blues singer, remembered singing uh, songs that she considered to be blues as early as 1902 or 1903. Whether we would recognize them as blues today is another matter entirely. It might have been more like a folk song with blues inflection, who knows, something like that. Well, Ma Rainey and her uh, husband Pa Rainey uh, toured with the Rabbit Foot Minstrels, which was a tent show and circus troupe in the early 1900s. And Bessie Smith probably toured with that group at one point and may have uh, learned quite a bit from Ma Rainey. Although the the jury is out on that one, she certainly gave credit in later life to the style of Ma Rainey, and. Uh, They had a similar style, singing uh, southern blues and southern music in a very traditional uh, way. Recordings were not made of any of these groups because of inborn prejudice of the recording executives. Of course, the recording industry was really just getting started as a commercial enterprise in the early 1900s, and the uh, idea that recording executives had was that African-American audiences were not going to buy records to begin with, and if they did, they wouldn't buy recordings made by other African-Americans. Well, that was put to the lie in 1920 when Mamie Smith, who was an African-American cabaret singer, was given the opportunity to record. And she, at one point, recorded a song called The Crazy Blues by Perry Bradford. And this was the first time that a 12-bar blues, we would consider a blues form, was recorded by an African-American singer. And it made a huge impact on the African-American community, who snapped up these recordings and made it a very large seller in... uh, urban communities especially to begin with but then it branched out into uh, suburban and rural communities as well. This proved to recording executives that there was indeed a market for this type of music and they began recording these uh, black cabaret singers, mostly women at the time, uh, to make recordings from uh, black shows and other pop tunes and blues as well and so we have the beginnings of the recording careers of Alberta Hunter and Ethel Waters among others. By 1923, the perception was that uh, those singers were kind of running their course and they were looking for new talent so they started mining the secondary layer of this black entertainment uh, juggernaut that was uh, going around the country at the time and they found singers like Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith who were considered traditional blues singers and began recording them. So Bessie Smith at this time in 1923 was already a headliner uh, of her own shows. She began performing in shows in 1912 and touring around the South primarily. Uh, By 1919, she was regarded as a a headline type of star, and she headlined a show called The Liberty Bell in 1919, and that started her off on her major career, and she began doing quite a few shows. By early 1923, she was in a show called How Come, which was opening in Washington, D.C., and she was given the opportunity to record, and uh, this started her 10-year recording career. She may have made some recordings before that, but they haven't survived. Certainly some test recordings. Her first commercially issued recording was The Downhearted Blues in 1923. That was a tune by Alberta Hunter, and it was uh, a big success for her, and it became an even bigger success for Bessie Smith. And that uh, compelled or inspired Columbia Records to offer her a contract, which was renewed more or less every year, Um, until about 1931. And during that period, she made uh, over 150 recordings that were issued, making her one of the most prolific recording artists of the period, whether black or white, certainly the most uh, prolific and successful African-American artist. By 1931, of course, we had the Depression and the inevitable changing of popular music tastes, and uh, the recording industry had fallen off significantly, and her career looked like it was over in the recording studios at that point although she did come back and make one last recording session for John Hammond in 1933. She continued touring with shows uh, all the way through uh, the 1930s until she finally died in a car crash in 1937 and uh, quite a bit of drama and romance attached to that. Uh, There was a play written about it. uh, Some people felt that she died because she was denied care at a white hospital. That's been proven not to be entirely true. But at any rate, she did die a a sudden and obviously very painful death. And her uh, legend has continued since then with reissues and uh, recognition that she was indeed the best of the blues singers from that classic blues period of the 1920s. So in the spring of 1929, this was before the Depression hit, obviously, but it was at a time when the recording industry was starting to turn away from these classic blues singers a bit. Bessie Smith, uh, by virtue of her popularity, was given the opportunity to make a film, and she's essentially alone among African-American women entertainers from that period to make a film that featured her primarily. Mamie Smith did a short subject um, that was lost after a while. I think it's been found in part anyway. But this Bessie Smith film was called the St. Louis Blues, and it was organized around the song written by W.C. Handy. It was a two reel short subject, about 17 minutes long. The first reel was a, a kind of a comedy, a backstairs comedy in an African-American boarding house. Bessie comes home to find her boyfriend Uh, in an embrace with his new girlfriend, who is, of course, young and pretty, and that involves a a big fight in which Bessie is knocked to the ground, and Jimmy, her boyfriend, walks out on her, and then the end of the first reel uh, comes with Bessie picking up a bottle of gin and starting to drink and singing the opening lines of the St. Louis Blues, which leads us into the second reel, which is a cabaret, actually a speakeasy, because this was during Prohibition, and there's a pan shot of the band, and this introduces us to the idea of the wedding of jazz and blues from this period, and those were two styles that were inextricably linked in the 1920s and uh, fed off of each other significantly. The band was a 10-piece band that was directed by James P. Johnson, the great Harlem Stride pianist, and he directed this group and was apparently the music director on the film as well. And uh, it was a band that included several members of the former Fletcher Henderson Orchestra which had broken up due to uh, some internal squabbling, which is going to be the subject of a different show later on, and it features this group playing slow and fast versions of the st louis blues featuring bessie smith singing at the bar lamenting the loss of her man who comes back a little bit later they dance he throws her down again takes her money and he goes off and she sings very slowly again so it's a whole little opera in about seven and a half minutes the significance of that is that that is i believe the first time that bessie smith and james p johnson collaborated together at least on a recording and in this case a film Uh, The film itself didn't have great popularity. It was released in the fall of 1929, right before the stock market crash, and had limited uh, uh, visibility, limited release, uh, really just in the New York era, and for many years was thought to be a lost film. But... It was found, I think, in the 1970s and restored to something like its original character, and it's really an extraordinary document. I'd recommend you go onto YouTube and take a listen to that and watch Bessie Smith in action. That's the only way we can see her. So by the fall of 1929, uh, Bessie Smith was still recording, and for whatever reason, she was uh, given the opportunity to record about three sessions with James P. Johnson by himself. No other horns or anything like that. And typically, we in the jazz world focus more on those recordings that she made that feature horn players like Louis Armstrong or Charlie Green or Joe Smith and listen to the interaction between the horn and the voice. But Bessie Smith did record lots of times with just a piano player, Fletcher Henderson, Clarence Williams, Porter Granger, Fred Longshaw, people like that. But... um it wasn't until this period with James P. Johnson that she met an accompanist who was really equal to her in terms of artistry and reputation. And uh, because of that, some commentators like Gunther Schuller and Edward Brooks feel or felt that um, James P. was not a great match for Bessie Smith. His accompanying style was too busy and too technical, and tended to uh, interact too much with the singing and so forth. I actually feel the opposite. I think that his abilities as an accompanist and some of the energy that he brought to the proceedings really inspired her in a very different way up to this point uh, bessie smith had recorded a lot of traditional 12-bar blues folk blues some folk tunes she had a short period at the beginning of her career after the first contract uh, of a year was uh, finished where she was recorded in more traditional meaning folk settings with a fiddle and a banjo uh, creating music that sounded more like Ma Rainey than Bessie Smith but that was either not a success or uh, there was enough opposition to it that that type of approach was dropped and she was back to recording some more jazzy tunes. At the beginning of the acoustic recording era in 1925, her first recordings were actually with a contingent of the Fletcher Henderson band, uh, more like a Dixieland band as we describe it today, but recording some blues, like W.C. Handy's Yellow Dog Blues, and some pop tunes of an earlier vintage, like There'll Be a Hot Time in Old Town Tonight, which was a hit in the Spanish-American War of 1898, and Alexander's Ragtime Band, an Irving Berlin tune from 1911. She did record one contemporary tune at that point, Muddy Water, which was uh, a tune wasn't a blues, but it was a blues-like tune that uh, celebrated, if you will, one of the floods of the Mississippi River at the time. So... She had a an interesting variety of of sounds in her early recording career. But by the time we get to 1929 and James P. Johnson, we're uh, seeing a kind of a reevaluation, I guess. And this wouldn't have been her choice necessarily. I don't think artists at that point had a lot of agency over what they recorded with some uh, exceptions to that rule, for example, Duke Ellington. But uh, Bessie Smith was probably given tunes to record, or told she had to record So Many Blues, for example, since that was considered her main staple uh, selling point among the African American and the white community as well. By the late 20s, as I said, the classic blues era was on the wane, and some of the songs that Bessie Smith was recording Uh, were recording were uh, departures from her earlier uh, styles. One of the things she was doing was what I would call dirty blues, salacious blues, things like Kitchen Man and uh, Empty Bed Blues where the lyrics were at the very least suggestive and sometimes more than that and the accompaniment could be emphasizing some of the dirty sounds as well. She also had a little brief fling with gospel music. She recorded two pseudo-gospel numbers with a choir, the best Choir. And uh, James P. Johnson was on that as well, but that was uh, apparently not a successful uh, experiment. It was never repeated. And then, uh, in terms of the recordings we are now going to talk about, we have James P. Johnson and Bessie Smith recording some more sophisticated numbers. At these three recording sessions in October of 1929, she recorded a number of tunes, of which eight were released. And Two or three of them represent the most sophisticated song structures that she had recorded to date. Um, They were in the more modern Tin Pan Alley AABA 32 bar form, uh, with verses and sometimes patter sections and things like that. She also did some blues, including the first one we're going to listen to, which was called the Blue Spirit Blues. Now the Blue Spirit Blues is a minor blues and different than any one she had recorded to that point. Gunther Schuller uh, talked about this song, and he said it represented, quote, the fire and brimstone visions worthy of a Hieronymus Bosch, unquote. And, you know, just a quote from the lyrics towards the end of the song show this Demons with the eyelids dripping blood, demons with the eyelids dripping blood, dragging sinners to that brimstone flood. Uh, sounds like a Vincent Price uh, lyric as well. In fact, Edward Brooks even called it a gothic twilight. And uh, needless to say, I guess, this is something that uh, Bessie Smith had not recorded before. She had done some scary blues, like cemetery blues and things like that, in uh, the early 20s. But they were played more for novelty and comedy effect than this. This is taken very seriously. Um, James P. Johnson starts out with a kind of a, a uh, hackneyed introduction, a silent movie Uh, minor introduction, but it quickly goes into some very impassioned singing and playing by both parties, James P. and Bessie Smith. This was a song that was composed by Spencer Williams, who was a noted black songwriter from New Orleans who was responsible for a lot of things we call jazz standards today, like the Basin Street Blues and I Found a New Baby and Tisha Mingo Blues. But this is a song that uh, really sort of took him outside his comfort zone, I would say, and likewise, Bessie Smith and James P. Johnson. So now we're going to listen to the Blue Spirit Blues, followed by another song, which we'll talk about on the other side. That would be called You Don't Understand, an example of one of those sophisticated songs.
1: But I know, dear, that you don't understand Open up your heart, let me in your heart I'm pleading, no one else will do Cause it's only you, I'm needing my faith You hold my love in your hand. But I know, dear, that you don't understand I'm so blue in despair Cause you have turned me down I don't know if you care I don't come around You know, honey, it's so funny When you treat me bad won't you hear me pleaded Cause I'm going mad It makes me cry When you laugh in my face But I know dear That you don't understand Now I see Why I can't hold first place Cause I know dear that you don't understand for your love i will strive, shows i'm alive i'll bet you then you'll forgive soon you'll forgive i'll get you then you'll see all the things that i've planned but i know dear that you don't
0: You Don't Understand, another very interesting tune by Bessie Smith, and it wasn't by Bessie Smith, but uh, performed by her, and uh, showing off some of the new influences in popular music. So we're going to listen to two more tunes now. One is going to be the session mate for You Don't Understand, that'll be the second tune we listen to, and the first tune is interesting in a different way. It's called the Wasted Life Blues, and This has some interesting provenance to it. We're not exactly sure, or I'm not exactly sure where it came from. Initially, Bessie Smith was given credit for this tune, but it clearly wasn't something that she... Uh, probably would have written. It's more like a Victorian era type of song. The melody sounds like a heart song, one of the, you know, melodramatic songs that were popular in the late Victorian era and into the early 1900s. It sounds very familiar to me. I've never been able to isolate what this song is based on. Somebody out there in podcast land may be able to help me with that. Uh, And the lyrics are very unlike anything that Bessie Smith did uh, as well. They're kind of self-pitying, which is not what we think of as being a typical Bessie Smith way of expressing herself. She was very forthright and uh, uh, has been used as a a representative of both African-American culture and also feminism as well. And this song does not fit into that at all, much more Victorian. Given credit uh, on... Some recording uh reissues of this song was a man named jack g g e e and he was bessie smith's husband, although at this point nineteen twenty nine they had basically separated she had found him having an affair with a uh, a singer in another show, and he was running that show and so forth very very messy situation. They had been married at this point for about six or seven years, and Jack G is not uh Looked on very favorably in the jazz uh, press, uh, as it turns out. He was considered to be, or is accused of being basically illiterate, uh, someone who was kind of leeching on to Bessie Smith's success. He tried to be a concert promoter. He toured with her groups and uh, was not well-liked by anybody in the groups. He uh, ran the money, and uh, most people who were uh, associates of him said that he wasn't up to the task. But regardless, he was part of the situation and I have to wonder if maybe uh, Bessie Smith didn't sign this tune over to him or give him credit for it uh, as part of her uh, divorce or separation proceedings, which happened around the same time. There is a uh, a card for the Library of Congress Copyright Office for this song that you can access online, The Wasted Life Blues, and it's credited to Jack G. and it's a handwritten lead sheet of this song, which is very peculiar because it's actually wrong. Um, The melody is incorrect, it starts on the wrong part of the beat, Uh, there's a a verse missing, the handwriting looks like a a child's handwriting writing music, and uh, so we, we have to assume that it's not James P. Johnson who had anything to do with this, although usually Bessie's accompanists in her earlier recording sessions uh, were responsible for writing out some of the tunes that they may have done spontaneously to submit them for copyright. Um, Fletcher Henderson did quite a few of these and Fred Longshaw and Porter Ranger and so forth, but James P. Johnson definitely did not do this one, so perhaps it was Jack G who did it, so he must have had some literacy to be able to Nowhere where to put the notes on the staff, even as imperfectly as they were. At any rate, it's a very unusual recording for Bessie Smith, or really for any African-American singer at this point, and uh, it shows off her singing abilities. She goes up to a high C at the very end, but she doesn't let it fly uh, in the way that she sings a lot of her notes, you know, to, to project to the back end of the gallery. This is done very musically and uh, technically quite correct, I think. So this shows off uh, some of her uh, singing abilities that probably were not captured on recording too well because she was singing for the audience that was perceived uh, as her main audience, her core group that were buying her records. On her uh, live appearances, she was certainly singing a variety of different songs, especially in her early career, from pop songs to folk songs to, you know, dance numbers, uh, as well as blues and other things too. Uh, A lot of that repertoire was not represented on recordings because of, again, segregation. Black uh, artists were encouraged to record blues and jazzier numbers and things like that, that they were thought to do better at in the view of the white recording executives. And on the other side of that, white bands were not encouraged or not allowed to do jazz recordings a lot of times. They had to play the more polite pop numbers of the day. I think of Gene Goldkett's orchestra from uh, Detroit that featured Bix back and Frank Trumbauer. They were not uh, allowed to record some of their hotter numbers, even though they were celebrated for those numbers and apparently did quite well in a battle of the bands with Fletcher Henderson when they both appeared at the Roseland Ballroom in 1925. So, we're going to listen to Wasted Life Blues now, followed by uh, another song that was the session made of You Don't Understand. This is called Don't Cry, baby, and uh, it's a fairly complicated structure, and we will talk about that on the other side.
1: I've lived a life but nothing I've gained Each day I'm full of sorrow and pain No one sees Care enough for me to give me a word of sympathy. Oh, me, oh, my, wonder what will the end be. Oh, me, oh, my, wonder what will become of for me. No mother to care, must bear my troubles all alone. Not even a brother to help me share this burden I must bear alone. Oh me, oh my, wonder what will my end be. Oh me, oh my the what will become of for me It again. Won't you forgive, won't you forget, to as I ask you to, I'll never let you regret, just so I knew. You know I'm sorry, oh, so sorry. Don't cry, baby, there's no one but you.
0: So that recording, Don't Cry Baby, was pretty sophisticated uh, lyrics and also in its structure. James P. Johnson was one of the composers of that song, and uh, he co-composed it with two other songwriters, Saul Burney and Stella Unger, and they were active on the Broadway scene in the 1920s. They didn't produce any songs that we would consider standards today, but they, and James P., Uh, collaborated on Don't Cry Baby, which starts out with a a verse, a fairly complicated verse, with a chromatic descent at the beginning, which is a little unusual to begin with, and then goes into the chorus, which is A-A-B-A. Since James P., the composer, was uh, performing this, and this I believe was the first recording of it, and one of the very few from this period, maybe the only one, uh, we have to assume that this is probably the tempo he wanted. Uh, It's a loping tempo. It allowed the singer to get through two choruses as well as the verse, and uh, you know to express some 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 different emotions on the different passes through the chorus. There were several recordings of this later on in the 30s and into the 40s, uh, in uh, late big bands and early R&B type groups. Erskine Hawkins. Um, Count Basie and Lucky Melinder all recorded this song with a singer, but very slowly, and I don't think any of them did the verse. It was just the chorus, and you can tell that this song obviously had some legs with the African-American community, but it was produced for a show at this time in the 1920s, 1929. So we're going to listen to two, well, just one more recording I think we have time for. Since we've listened to all of this uh, Bessie Smith uh, repertoire that is not terribly reflective of her uh, known style and what we associate with the Bessie Smith classic blues style, we're gonna finish up with one that's probably a little bit more familiar, at least in tone, uh, if not in sound. This was a song called Don't, or excuse me, The Dirty No-Gooders Blues. And this is a a tune that was um, attributed to Bessie Smith, and we can believe this, I think. You know, just listening to one of the couplets. There's 19 men living in my neighborhood. There's 19 men living in my neighborhood. 18 of them are fools, and the one ain't no doggone good, obviously, about lost love and romantic entanglements and things uh, that are common to the blues style and certainly to Bessie Smith's recorded blues style. And uh, in this she also kind of harkens uh, back to the earlier Ma Rainey type of style as well. She uses the word laud, you know, that gospel uh, exhortation, and she just sings that word long, and then she answers herself. There are no other horn players here to answer her, so she does a little call and response with herself. Where Ma Rainey might have moaned or just used a syllable, uh, Bessie Smith uses the word laud, but the effect is very similar as well. So let's listen to the Dirty No-Gooders Blues.
1: Ball oh. and kind till he win your heart in hand Then he'd get so cruel that man you just could not stand the pain That dirty no-good man treats me just like I'm a dog.
0: So there we have the Dirty No-Gooders Blues, a little more traditional Bessie Smith recording, although a little bit faster than she might have taken some of those traditional blues earlier in her career. That shows some... Uh, difference in stylistic development and, and popular taste as well, perhaps. So that's our Bessie Smith podcast for today. hope you enjoyed that. All those recordings are taken from October of 1929 and feature Bessie Smith singing with the estimable accompaniment of James P. Johnson on piano, the great Harlem Stride pianist, and uh, I think show a, a really a different side of Bessie Smith's artistry in this case. So you've been listening to the Jazz Focus, and that is our first podcast. I have plans for three more, and we'll continue apace as people want them and if my time allows. I think we're going to try to do this on a regular basis. So the next uh, podcast, which will be coming up after this, listen to the men in any order you want, of course, will be devoted to a Chicago group called the Gold Coast Jazz Band, and that's a traditional jazz Dixieland band that was made up of at least partly made up of members of uh, the Salty Dog Jazz Band from the early 1960s, and some other people as well, some interesting guest stars. And so we'll listen to a few recordings that they did in 1960 and 62. After that, we're going to be looking at a band uh, that is characterized as a Western Swing Band. And I don't know what your prejudices are with Western Swing, but this is a very jazzy group uh, led by a man named Roy Newman. And this is a, a group that stylistically was maybe a little behind the, the the curve when they made the recordings, but they were very, very jazzy and have some interesting soloists and do some interesting tunes. So we'll be listening to them for four or five tunes, maybe six, we'll see. And then the last one will be a salute to the Fletcher Henderson Reunion All Stars. These were men who played with the Fletcher Henderson Band in the 1920s, 30s, and into the 40s, some of them. And they got together in the late 1950s as part of a jazz festival. I think it was called the Great South Bay Jazz Festival. And they went into the studio to record some of Fletcher Henderson's classic charts. This was after Henderson himself had died several years before that. The band was led by Rex Stewart and featured soloists like Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster, Buster Bailey, Hilton Jefferson, Taft Jordan... J.C. Higginbottom, Benny Morton, uh, Dickie Wells, you get the message. So some extended tracks that may give us a clue to what the Henderson band sounded like in person when they weren't restricted by the three-minute recording class. So that's uh, what's to come. So I hope you're interested in checking out some of our other podcasts. And once again, this is John Clark and The Jazz Focus. See you on the other side.